0: Thank you. It's a real joy to be back again with you and uh, see such a great crowd. We're going to come into Philippians straight away, and uh, I know you're doing a series, and I've been asked to take the section Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. I'm going to just read a little earlier than that to pick up from last week, and uh, then reading from the NASB. So you, you may be reading from an NIV or an ESV. There's so many different translations these days, but there's not a lot of difference, okay? So, I'm just going to read from verse 5 of Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross for this reason also god highly exalted him bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I'll have reason to glory because I didn't run in vain or toil in vain. But even as I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of worshipping you, knowing you, experiencing a God of such incredible faithfulness. Father, things we've been singing, that, Lord, you're with us. You're committed to expressing your love, your care, your kindness. And, Father, we thank you for every experience of your love. Thank you for being with the team that have been out to Kenya. Thank you for keeping them safe. Thank you for Edward Berea, these wonderful people, these churches that are mushrooming. Thank you for helping us to help them. Lord, we're so grateful that our hands reach across the nations, they're part of a massive family. Father, we're, we're so grateful. And Lord, as we now open the word together, Holy Spirit, just come, we pray. Be our teacher. Rest upon us. Come, Holy Spirit, lead us into truth. Come and wash us by the water of the word that we might be a bride worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ be glorified. Here we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the passage that was handled last weekend, and we've just read through, contains one of the most classic statements about the person of Christ, this wonderful passage about his laying down his glory, laying down his majesty, and taking the form of a servant. It's an amazing passage, and uh, actually books have been written just on that passage. Um, amazing statements, so much ink, has been spent uh, writing about that. Almost taken completely out of context because it's so rich. And every phrase, you know, he was in the form of God. He took the form of a servant. What does this mean and that mean? And and often it's, it's dissected phrase upon phrase. And I've got books, you know, phrase upon phrase. But actually, that's taking it right out from the way it was written. Paul didn't write actually as a kind of theologian at a desk, He wrote to a church that he helped to bring to birth. He'd been in Philippi. He'd suffered a lot. When he was there, he was beaten. He was imprisoned. His back's bleeding. He's in real trouble. And that church came to birth out of his apostolic work. He was thrilled with them. And then he traveled on, and then he began to hear there was tension in the church. Began to hear there were problems, there were maybe the danger of some division taking place, and that's why he wrote the Philippian letter. And he didn't write to give them a theological statement, he wrote to help them live out the Christian life. And as Steve brought it so helpfully to us last week, He wanted us to live worthy of the gospel, a gospel-worthy life. That's why he wrote the letter. It wasn't to write so that you could dissect what he said. He wrote to say, I want to help you through your problem. I want to help you. And the way we get help is by living our life in the light of who Jesus is, what Jesus accomplished. We're not just meant to be moral people. We don't live with a kind of ethical code. We are overwhelmed by this amazing fact that Jesus, the Lord of glory, laid down his glory, took on human form, and, and what he did humbled himself and was obedient unto death, even on a cross. And that is meant to have an amazing impact on us in our lifestyle. So we're not just trying to be good people. We're trying to live in the light of this thing we've discovered. That God humbled himself, that God came to our planet, came down to our level, and lives such an incredible life that it impacts us. It has, it has terrific effect upon our lives. That's the way we're to approach this, we're to understand. He wants harmony in the church. I mean, it's nice to have harmony. I mean, it's nice to have harmony at the golf club, isn't it, uh, or any place. You do want a place of tension, but we're not talking about the golf club, We're talking about the church of the living God. We're talking about people who write, he writes to them that they should be of one spirit. And that doesn't mean one atmosphere. It means the Holy Spirit is upon us all. And we have a unity that is a supernatural thing and we're to be living that out. And so that's the light in which he writes to them, that they're to have this awareness that God is among them, that God has set an amazing example and this should affect Their lifestyle together. And so he tells them, as we come on in the passage now, to work out their salvation. That's the phrase that follows work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you. Now you might say, well, what has this got to do with salvation? I thought salvation was about being born again. I thought salvation was about heaven and hell, life and death. I thought that was salvation. Salvation. Are you saved? I expect you heard the story of the Salvation Army girl who approached the bishop and said to him, are you saved? And he rather pompously but accurately replied, do you mean have I been saved? Am I going to be saved? Or am I enjoying salvation? It's a bit of a rude answer, but actually it's accurate. It's what the Bible, the Bible talks about salvation in those categories. Yeah, we have experienced salvation, we've experienced new birth, we've, we've passed from death to life. We can celebrate that, yes, we're saved. We could answer, yes, I believe it, it happened to me, many of us can put a date on it, we remember the occasion, we remember it happening. For some of us, it's sort of something that's gradually dawned on us, but we know by the mercy of God, yes, that has happened, it's happened to us. And yet here Paul's saying to us, work out your salvation, work out your salvation your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you. The great Martin Lloyd-Jones said, perhaps this is one of the most perfect summaries of the Christian life to be found anywhere. Work out your salvation, for God is at work in you. You do it because God's doing it with you. God's working in you, so you have to work it out. We have a responsibility To work out our salvation, to take action, to make decisions, to respond to circumstances, which actually is working out our salvation. It's not just being ethical people, it's working out some profound thing that God's done in us, which we call salvation. You remember when Jesus went to the house of Zacchaeus, and it says, Zacchaeus said, Look, all that I've taken, I give back, I multiply gifts. And Jesus didn't say, Wow, that's generous. That's kind of you. He said, This salvation has come to this house. You've been set free from your preoccupation with money. You've changed your lifestyle. You've changed your priorities. This is salvation having its outworking right down on the ground where you live. You are being changed by the gospel. It's not simply something that's happened, as it were, in spiritual terms, but something that's taken place in our lives. And we take responsibility. See, some people would say that Christianity, once you've received Christ, from then on, it's just let go and let God. And you'll hear that kind of phrase. Stop striving. And sometimes you hear people say this, hand it over to the Lord. Like, you've got a problem, but just hand it over to him to be honest, it doesn't mean a lot. But people who say that, sometimes people write songs, what is it to be a Christian? We just hand it over to the Lord. But the Bible doesn't encourage us to be passive like that. It says, work out your salvation. You play your part. You take your choice. You take the action you're meant to take. And God is at work in you to will and to do those sort of things. But you're not just passive. We're not called upon to be passive. I've been, uh, in my own devotions recently, working through the book of Nehemiah, for instance. And you find it classically in Nehemiah. You remember the story of Nehemiah. He goes back to Jerusalem when the the whole city is in ruins. The walls are down. It's devastation for Jerusalem. And he is passionately wanting to rebuild those walls. And you find with Nehemiah, it starts with a terrific burst of prayer. He hears the news, Zion is in ruins. His heart is broken, he prays, he comes to his employer, he says, please let me go, that I may rebuild it. He doesn't say, let's take a poll, let's see if anybody would like. He says, I want to do this. And actually, that's how things get done. When somebody who God is gifted to be a leader says, I'm going to do it. And he gets hold of it and he starts with prayer and he says things like this as he goes and people gather to him. He says to them, remember the Lord strong and mighty and fight. Remember how mighty he is and you fight. And then again, he says, the Lord will give us success, therefore we will arise and build. He will do it, therefore we do it. He says, I'm going to help you, therefore we take steps. We take responsibility. We sometimes sing things like this, purify my heart. I think from heaven sometimes there comes an answer, purify yourself. (laughs) It says in 1 John, he that has this hope purifies himself. We take steps. We make choices we work out our salvation. Purify my heart. Yes, of course God will work with us. Of course God will move in our hearts. Of course God will awaken our conscience and stimulate new desires. He put new desires in us. He put new preferences that weren't there before. New appetites. But he still says to us, now you, you take action. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Sounds easy, doesn't it? So the next phrase says, therefore, make every effort. We make efforts because he's done his part. He's acted, therefore we act. We take our responsibility. We fulfill our part. See, sometimes people say, well, that's who I am. I'm a Christian. I'm Joe Blunt. I've always been Joe Blunt. I speak my own mind. I know people get offended, but that's who I am. No, purify yourself. Let him who stole, steal no longer. You who used to be like that, well, that's the way I am. My dad was like it as well. No, no, work out your salvation. Learn how to make changes in your life by the help of God. Let God be your helper as you make those changes, as you move on into what God has for you. I'd like to read a story that Wendy put in one of her books where she had to battle with something which was very real to her. And I thought it was such a vivid illustration that came to mind as I was preparing and working on the passage for you this morning. She says in one of her books, Women Set Free, many years ago I had the very bad attitude towards a lady in the church. There wasn't any one thing that provoked me about her. I suppose we just grated on each other. Then I began to to find, as I allowed my wrong feelings to continue, they affected my relationships with others, and especially my freedom to worship. I knew I had a choice before me. One night I said to Terry, you're going up to bed, I need to talk to God about this. When I was alone, I reviewed the situation. Where should I begin? For some reason I started by writing a list of all the things I didn't like about the lady, As I saw her, she was intolerant with others, she didn't listen to their viewpoint, she was obstinate, intractable, and in my ignorant and narrow-minded way of thinking, I saw her and her family as a threat to the peaceful progress of the church. I sat back on my heels, I read through the horrendous list with a self-satisfied smile. Of course, I could not have have a tender-hearted forgiving attitude to such an individual much better if she and her family left what happened next totally deflated me almost like an audible voice i heard the words what you've just written down is a picture of yourself i knew it was my loving shepherd's voice i couldn't doubt it i was absolutely devastated All my self-righteous complacency dissolved into a heap, into deep conviction as I wet my way to repentance. God spoke to me again. Esteem others as better than yourselves. Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. I realized the horrible truth that I was full of pride and arrogance and was setting myself up as a judge over my sister in Christ. After I'd received God's forgiveness, I had no trouble at all in forgiving my friend. In fact, there really was nothing to forgive. Having removed the log from my own eye, I gained a more accurate perspective on the moat that was in hers. It wasn't immediately all sweetness and light. We spent a painful evening bearing our souls to each other, but we resolved to work on our relationship and to build positively I knew the battle was won when it occurred to me six months later that if my friend were to leave town, it would break my heart. Now, that I think is a wonderful illustration of this scripture. I've got a problem. It begins to devour me, preoccupies me. I make a choice to dislike this person. I'm hostile. And then God begins to work and says, now, come on, you need to pray about this. You need to seek me about this. And she begins to seek God and, 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 and battling within. But internally, this is awareness, sudden awareness. You see, Paul says, work out your salvation, for God is at work in you. You have a God who's jealously wanting you to change. He wants you to change your attitudes. He wants to, he wants to bring you to maturity. He wants to bring you to wholeness. And so sometimes that happens when we confront a situation, maybe a person. Maybe something that's grating, as Wendy says in her little article here. She's grating on this. And then, and then when she seeks God, God is at work. She encounters the God who said, it's like I heard him speak to me. That's you. That's your attitude. And so, beloved, we can get changed by the power of God. We, God works on our lives. God works in situations, setbacks, disappointments, all sorts of situations, because he's, he's purging out of us. Things which alone we would never deal with. That's why the church is so important. You can never come to maturity if you're not in the living church. It's impossible to come to maturity alone. The Bible makes it quite plain that we're to care for one another, love one another, provoke one another to good works, pray for one another, encourage one another. Over 40 one another's. That's why we want to be in a church where we love one another, know one another, get into one another's lives, and sometimes great against one another which we wouldn't want. <laughs> We're not looking for that, but it happens. It happens. And then what do we do with it? Well, if we want to work out our salvation, because that's what it is, dear friends. It's not just being a nicer person. It's wor- God's wanting to save you. Not just to save you from hell, but save you from all sorts of stuff that was in you. And it's through contact and communication and these things come to light. You say, gosh, is that me? You get the horrible shock. Gosh, that's exactly what you're like. (laughs) And then, oh, I'm so sorry, Lord. And God's at work in us to change us, to bring us through. Actually, also to give you a friend that you didn't have before, to knit together the body of Christ because we allow God to be at work in us and we respond to it. We don't resist it. We don't say, no, that's not fair. No, no, we, we learn to respond to these initiatives that come within. God is at work in us. Therefore, we ourselves must work at it. It's not hand it all over. You've got a problem with your sister? well, hand it over to the Lord. That isn't what the Bible says. Just, I just handed it all over. Nothing happens. You work at it because God's at work in you. Amen? I love it. That's our responsibility. That's God. God's going to raise up a people that bring him glory as we respond to his initiatives. God teaches us, we take responsibility. So my first heading, if you like, was the fact of salvation. Work out your salvation. Yeah, with fear and trembling. God is at work in you. God will help you. God will speak to you. God will accompany you. God will change your attitude supernaturally. He'll change your attitude. Some battles we have, some are easy. I know for myself, when I came out of the world, I found I could give out my disgusting language overnight. It just stopped. And I gave up drinking pretty quickly. But smoking was a real battle. I thought, oh boy, this is tough. I want, Not that smoking's the biggest sin in the world. I don't want to overstate that. But I wanted to stop, but I couldn't tried to work at it. I remember thinking, you know, my first cigarette usually was a coffee break in the morning. And I couldn't imagine coffee without a cigarette. So I stopped having coffee in the morning. So I could push my first cigarette to later. Because I couldn't imagine the coffee break without so. Because I've got to f- work it out. I've got to fight this thing. i am going to win this battle. God's given us everything we need for life and God on us. So, take action. I'm not going to let this thing win. So I pushed it till later in the day. I pushed, it, I pushed it until I was down to five a day. And I thought, listen, Terry, five a day, that means for hours you're not having any, therefore stop. And I took up, I, I just fought it. i worked out. And there are other things in our lives. We have to work it out, work it out. And God will help you. And God will set you free. But we're not passive. Christianity is not a passive religion. It's not, it's not mystical. Oh, just hand it over. No, that doesn't do anything. Take the truth, live in the light of it, make adjustments, and be changed from the sort of person you used to be. So that's the work of salvation. Work out your salvation. And then he gives us an example of salvation. An example. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. The passage goes on. Now, grumbling and complaining, he could have talked about money, sex, power. He could have talked about anything. But he talks about something that we're, we, we live in a world actually sort of characterized by grumbling and complaining. Sadly, it's a bit of the atmosphere of England at the moment. You know, we're complaining about the economy. We're complaining about immigration. We're complaining about the health service. You know, everyone's complaining. And it's very much the language that's around us. And Paul is now writing to these believers saying, now you... I want you to live without murmuring and complaining. It's just an illustration, one of the ways he wants he wants you to be different as murmuring and complaining. But it's so easy just to take part, isn't it? You can be at the school gate. It can be in the in the hospital waiting room. It can be at the bus stop, and everyone's moaning. Yeah, one of these buses you wait for, them, and then three come along. You know. Well, And um, see, you either get caught up in it or you don't. And it's so easy to learn the language that everybody else is speaking. I was shocked when I went to Australia uh, to see the church in Sydney, the the New Frontiers Church was in Sydney. And, And what amazes me is the many, many, and I met several personally, Chinese second generation Australians. So this lovely Chinese face comes up to you and he said, oh, a guy from China. He says, "Good <laughs> I mate. Several times it blew me away. <laughs> several times. I thought, oh, wow, that shouldn't come out from there. That's like that's the wrong face for that voice. He learned the language. We can so easily learn the tone, learn the language, be part of a moaning culture. And God doesn't like it, actually. God doesn't like moaning and complaining because behind it is a kind of dissatisfaction that's at the root. It says in Romans 1, when Paul gives his kind of philosophy of man, he says the first step down, this terrible spiral where he got worse and worse and worse, the first step down was he did not honor God or give thanks. The first step down. You know, I stepped down from this platform several steps down. First step didn't honor God or give thanks. Then it goes on, and it went worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. When we start complaining, it's the very opposite of honoring and giving thanks. And for the believer especially, there's something that, that orders our lives. That we say, no, no, God is in charge so we hit big issues we hit things like well i thought my house would have sold by now i thought we would have had the operation by now i thought the hospital would this by now this, and and you can either just learn the language day, mate or you can say no no i'm not going to speak that language that's not who i am i'm going to trust tr- i trust god god knows about the delay god knows about this god is over my circumstances God is bigger than the situation. I am going to walk by faith. I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to become part of the moaning, complaining generation around me. This is one of the things Paul just illustrated. He could have picked up all sorts of stuff. He brings this thing, murmuring and complaining. Now, it's interesting. If you look at 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul is writing about what happened to the Hebrews in the Old Testament and how they, they were destroyed in the wilderness, it talks about immorality. Then it talks about, and they murmured and complained, and God destroyed them. It's one of the things listed why God judged them, because they murmured, they complained. God hates it, and we need to step out from it. Don't. This is one of the ways we're working out our salvation, that we do it without murmuring and without complaining, because well, we know in the wisdom of God we know he's faithful. We know he's powerful. So it affects our whole attitude to things. We know God could do it differently. We know God loves us. We know God's for us. So we don't look at circumstances just as they come. We look, what's God doing behind this? <laughs> and it says in uh, James, count it all joy when you meet various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete so we can handle trials even count them joy why because we know something we know it's going to produce something in us we know the trial we know the delay we know the setback we know the heartache the thing which ah if we could just stand back god's over this knowing that if we learn from him, God will bring about something in us. I always remember C.J. Mahaney, some of you who go back years with um, with me, uh, Downs Bible Week, Stonely Bible Week. C.J. Mahaney, one of the best preachers I've ever heard. Hilarious, amazing guy. He had this, hysteria, this wonderful illustration from that passage about knowing. He said, count it all joy knowing. And he said something I found peculiar. He said, I can't stand watching a game like watching England play Ireland yesterday at rugby say not knowing what the result will be. So he said, I watch it through. I watch it. I watch it with fear. I watch it with fear. Because they've gone ahead now. Oh grief, what's going to happen? And then, then they win. We win. He said, that. then that's happened. He said, that's great. He said, now I put the recording back on again. And he said, I know we're going to win. I can watch it. <laughs> I can watch it all through again. I think, crazy guy. But he says, he says I can watch it. What? I, I, get, I can really enjoy it now. Why? Because I know the end. I know we're going to win this in the end. Okay, Ireland went ahead for a while. But I know we won in the end. Knowing. And he said, this passage says, look, We handle things knowing. What do we know? We know God works through these things. God builds things into our lives. God is perfecting us. God is changing us. God is dealing with us. Knowing that changes our attitude. Beloved, we know things. We know things that are enough to take us through and to stop us murmuring and complaining and to be aware. No, no, God. God is in charge, God knows what He's doing. God has everything under control. Amen? If that's true, then we can take this on board. We say, yes, Lord, we can live in the light of your adequacy, your love, your power, the many things we've been singing about this morning. See, we don't want to sing these things on Sunday and then on Monday be moaning with everybody else. And that's what Paul is saying. Look, walk worthy of the gospel. Walk affected by the truth you know. And let your speech, therefore, be different. Let it be different. That you are, he says, children of God. You have a new identity. Blameless, pure, and without fault. Now, each of those words, um, in the Greek language, it begins with an A, which makes it a negative. So he's saying, it's like no blame, no flaw, no fault. That's how he wants us to be in our lives. No blame no flaw, no fault, children of God, a different race among the people, among the people. You live like your father. You live different. You don't murmur. You don't complain. You might say, hey, come on, how do you do that? And some people have said, well, I think the only way I can do that is to go into a monastery and take a vow of silence, and people have literally done that. People have looked li- They thought, God's called us to such a holy life that I need to withdraw from the world because the world will contaminate me. The world will keep on ruining me. And so they said, well, I better get out of the world because I want to live for God. So that withdraw and then take a vow of silence. <laughs> That'll stop me. I won't murmur or complain because, you know, that's going to stop me. That'll do it. No, because here in the Bible it says whereby you shine like stars in the darkness. You don't concentrate your light in the monastery. The whole point is we're different. The whole point is we shine. The whole point is what is it with her? That in the workplace, when the threat of the place going to close down, we're going to be made redundant and everybody goes crazy and there's something about you, that's what opens the door for the gospel that's what shining like lights begins to be shining like a light because it's different you're different otherwise if we're all speaking like everybody if we're all murmuring and complaining where's the difference you go to church on sunday but you moan as much as anybody else oh you're religious and you moan Now god wants us to shine like lights and that scripture says actually it's quite difficult to know how to translate it, and you'll find different Bibles translate it differently. The next phrase is holding forth or holding on to the word of life. And some Bibles put holding forth in the text and holding on in the margin, and some put it the other way around. It, it's a word, it probably means holding fast to the word of life. People want it to be more evangelistic, if you like. Holding forth, shine like lights speak it probably means probably means hold on to the light you have that's what it probably means Alec Mateo says light is a beautiful illustration of something that does what it has to do by being what it ought to be by being what it ought to be you're shining like lights it's such a contrast. I remember once we were having a New Frontiers international team meeting and we were away in the hotel for a weekend, talking, praying, preparing, organizing, and each time we go down and have a meal. And, and one day a, a waiter who was serving us and none of us had witnessed to him, we hadn't held forth the word of life to him, and one day, he, he just stopped us. He said, gentlemen, may I interrupt your conversation? And we all kind of looked up. Well, and he said, I just want to say to you, it is such a pleasure to serve you gentlemen. And we thought, what was that all about? I mean, literally, we thought, what's the deal? And you, and you thought about it later. You thought, I wonder what kind of stuff gets said to him at the other tables. I wonder how he's treated by other people. I wonder what he hears bombarding his... He, and, and when he came to our table, he saw something that made him have the nerve to say, excuse me, gentlemen, we'll have to stop talking and look around. He said, it is such a privilege to serve you gentlemen. I thought, well, what's that all about? But I honestly believe there was something about our demeanor, maybe our gratitude, maybe our lack of complaining, that shone. And for us, dear friends, it's not necessarily holding fast the word, holding forth the word, rather. It's holding fast the word. Letting the word govern your style. Letting the, gov- letting the word work its way through you. Work out your salvation. There's a consistency. There's a light. The office where you work, there's something about you. The place where you spend your days, people say, there's something about her, there's something about him that leads to inquiry, that leads to later. Tell me, how do you live this way? well, I'm trying to be a child of the King. I'm trying to work out my salvation. As a result of which, yeah, you begin to shine like stars in the dark. You, you brightly shine. That's the, that's the language of the passage we're looking at. You shine like lights. God wants us to be that. God wants your life affected by your gospel. You're working it out, and this is an area we work it out. So we've seen, first of all, the fact of salvation. Secondly, an example our language. Lastly, just the goal of salvation, to wind this up. Paul's saying at the end of this passage, so that in the day of Christ, in the day of Christ, that's where it's all heading, the day of Christ, the day when Christ comes, the day when everything's wrapped up. That's what he's looking to. It started the uh, whole uh, epistle with that. He says, he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until what? Until the day of Christ. It's the day of Christ that we're working for. There's a day coming which is called the day of Christ, the day when he appears, the day actually when we all stand before him and we give account for our lives, the day when, yeah, he's the one who's now looking into our lives. Every one of us will appear before him. When it says appear, beloved, it doesn't mean, did you see see Jane at church this morning? I think she put an appearance. Doesn't mean that. It means you and I will appear who we really are without the gloss, without the externals. There'll come a day when we will appear <laughs> the real you. That's the day. I said, I'm working to that day. That's the day we're working for. That's why actually working out our salvation with some fear and trembling is appropriate because there's going to come a day when we appear before him. That will happen. That's the last part of salvation. When, yeah, we're saved. We're saved because of the blood of Jesus. It's a dealt with thing. We've passed from death to life. Having said that, he's still going to seek. what can I reward you for? How did you serve me? Am I going to burn up what was done because it's wood, hay, stubble? stubble? Or am I going to say, hey, no, this is gold. This is precious. And we will appear before him. And Paul says that he's always got that day in mind you'll find he refers to it often in his letters that day when we appear before him and he's hoping that they will stand fast because he in that day wants to have a well done from jesus and he's effectively saying if you make it you're part of my work you've you, what you how you work this out hey it's my work i planted this church i i i was in prison i was beaten i was poured out like an offering he says it's like i just poured my life out for this church to come to birth that's what paul is saying to the philippians and if i pour out my life as an offering yeah lord jesus be glorified and if you come through this if you stand he says to the thessalonians similarly he says if you stand we live it's like if you stumble i'm in trouble And that's one of the beautiful things about the New Testament church, which we've tried to recover in what we call New Frontiers, where the church has built relationships of love. It's not anonymous. It's not just an organization. It's a family. And Paul says, I care for you. I care for you. I love you. I'm for you. I had a a text early this morning. My phone went boing. I look at it. Dave Holden. Serving God in Paris it says just praying for you this morning as you go to Mid Sussex. Isn't that beautiful? I thought, Dave, if you're in Paris, you've got enough on your plate. I'm praying for you as you're here. It's family, it's like I care for you. You guys have just been out to be with Edward. That's a tough journey. The Sam San is not easy. Even the journey to Meru from Nairobi's quite a journey. But it's kindness, it's love, and it's family. It's not anonymous. It's not all some Christian mission. It's Edward. We know him. We love him. We care for him. We want his success. I had a beautiful note from him last week. Just, it's beautiful, beloved. I had a a letter this morning again from a lady in Tacoma, Washington State. That's the west side of America. She wrote to me. She said, I want to thank you for ever starting new frontiers. I don't know who she is. <laughs> she said, since I came to the church in Tacoma, which is led by a beautiful guy called Bo and his wife Alexis, whom we know ever so well, she said, my life has been transformed. I just feel my life's just completely changed. Thank you for ever starting New Frontiers. <laughs> huh? But beloved, it's family, people care, people want your success, and that's the f- that, is, that is the feel of the New Testament. Paul says, I want you to stand because that affects me. I, my, my life's caught up with you. He says in chapter 4, you'll come to later as we work through the passage. He writes them, my beloved, my brothers, my longed for, my joy, my crown of rejoicing. That's how he sees the church. It's not one of those churches I used to be involved in. He's so integrated with them. He cares so much for them. And God wants church like that. He wants individuals to know they're cared for. He wants churches to know they're cared for. He wants people to know, hey, we're in this together before God. We're his family. We're children of God. Shining like lights. Contrasting the darkness. A different note is being struck. There's discord out there. It's a horrible, discordant note. People shouting at one another. Just hearing in the car as we drove down, what are we going to do about soccer matches for little children? Because their parents are fighting one another on the, on the uh, sidelines, screaming at one another, shouting to their eight-year-old children, take him out! And some other parents saying, that's my kid. And, and the, the dis- discordant world out there is increasingly discordant, isn't it? Moaning, complaining. Beloved, there should be a different tune coming from our lips a different note being struck by us, a harmony, a beauty, something that says they're the children of God, that brings him glory. How do we do this? Well, we look at what Jesus did. He laid down his glory. He was obedient, even to death, even on the cross. Let these things affect us. Change our hard attitude. Work out your salvation. I don't like her. That's not enough. Well, I speak by mind. she may have been offended. That's not right. We need to work at our salvation. Change our attitudes. God will help you. God will come and work in you. He'll change your appetites. He's at work to change your will, to will, and to do. He'll change your attitudes, and He'll give you the ability to do it. Let's live it out for the glory of God. Amen?